Hello and welcome to New Books and Biblical Studies, where we look at new books about the Bible, from modern-day commentaries and art books to scholarly monographs and reference works. I'm Garrett Brown, the host of the channel. On today's program, I'm talking with Joseph Lamb about his book, Patterns of Sin in the Hebrew Bible, published by Oxford University Press. Informed by a deep engagement with theoretical perspectives on metaphor from linguistics and the philosophy of language, Lamb's book identifies four patterns that pervade the biblical texts. Sin as burden, sin as account, sin as path or direction, and sin as stain or impurity. Joseph Lamb is an assistant professor in the Department of Religious Studies at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He holds a Ph.D. in Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations from the University of Chicago. His articles have appeared in Vetus Testamentum and the Journal of Ancient Near Eastern Religions. Professor Lamb, welcome to the program. Thank you, Garrett. It's good to be here. So can you begin by telling our listeners a bit about yourself and your background? Yeah, so I am currently an assistant professor in the Department of Religious Studies at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Um, I teach various things, Hebrew Bible, um, ancient Near Eastern history and culture. I also teach biblical Hebrew language. Um, so there's uh, several of us in the Religious Studies Department that work on ancient fields. And so I'm one of those faculty. But our entire faculty spans, um, you know, the entire world's religions and um, various uh, phases in time. So um, I uh, came to North Carolina um, after doing a PhD um, in at the University of Chicago in Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations, um, which I received in 2012. And so um, the book we're talking about is my first book. So, uh, yeah. And it was your dissertation. It yeah began as my dissertation. It's been revised, you know, um, fairly extensively. Um, I think the core of the argument, the the, the sort of core structure of um, the work, remained the same, but um, a lot of stylistic changes, um, some reframing of the argument. I guess um, yeah. Great. Well, we'll get into that in just a bit. Um, I read that you grew up in a multilingual household and are a native speaker of Cantonese and 15 uh, modern and ancient languages. Is this true? Right. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the, um, you know, the 15 languages, I mean, especially the ancient ones, um, these are languages that I mostly acquired um, in graduate school in the course of my graduate training in ancient Near Eastern studies and so forth. They're, they're not, you know, um, sort of, conversational languages. I mean, the, yes. who are you going to be speaking conversational Hittite to? Not that many people in the world. Um, but yeah, I, I, um, I've, yes, I've lived in many different places in the world. I was born in Hong Kong. So that's where the Cantonese comes from, a native Cantonese speaker. Um, moved to Canada um, when I was relatively young, was, uh, seven years old, um, and then uh then grew up in Canada in Vancouver. Okay. Um, so, so I guess it, it's interesting. Sometimes people ask me, where is home? You know, where are you from? It, it's, um, it's sometimes a difficult question to answer immediately. Right. So I'm from both Hong Kong and Vancouver. Um, although I guess Vancouver is, um, more of, um, my, what I consider my home in terms of where most of my family is now. 
but yeah, so, so there's the multilingual kind of aspect and, uh, you know, I studied being in Canada, studied French growing up, um, you know, in school and, um, you know, other modern languages I've acquired along the way, um, in my academic studies. Okay. So this, yeah. so this experience, obviously, uh, you must have some natural talent for this, but also the, the household you were raised in and also shifting between languages must've made you alert to a lot of the linguistic, the differences in linguistic structure and, and, um, and then burrowing down into those things to, because they're often so fascinating. Is that, was that your experience? Absolutely. In fact, I mean, it, it's really interesting. You bring up that point. Um, and, and later when we discuss the book, I, I think, um, you know, a lot of the questions that continue to animate me as a scholar occur at the intersection of language and culture. So how language reflects culture, how, how, um, you know, language encodes different modes of cultural discourse, thinking, and then also in turn, how, how perhaps um, language also shapes culture. But um, growing up, you know, in all these places and, and uh, you know, having to shift between these different cultures, you know, not at that time having any sort of academic um, framework for understanding what was going on, but sort of implicitly learning that, you know, languages differ um, and that, you know, there's different ways in which people from different cultures look at the same thing. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so I think, you know, that those experiences definitely lie in the background of, of a lot of the academic work I continue to do. Excellent. So. Excellent. We'll talk about that. Um, I, I did see also uh, in your background that you have a, a, a bachelor's degree in science in engineering physics. So yes. how does one get from engineering physics to philology and linguistics? Uh, yeah. Well, um, you know, the, the long story would be very long. So I'll, I'll give you the shorter version. Um, so I'm a, you know, I'm in part a biblical scholar now. I mean, I, I do more than the Bible as well, but I do consider myself a biblical scholar. Um, I wasn't grown up. I didn't grow up kind of exposed to the Bible very much. So I was not in a, you know, did not grow up, uh, you know, in a church going or, you know, um, household where we necessarily read the Bible all that much. Um, and it was really kind of um, later, really during my college years that um, I discovered the Bible and, and, um, and church and, and uh, kind of became interested kind of as a newcomer mm -hmm. really in this whole other world. And um, so I, you know, majored in engineering kind of coming out of high school, basically because I was good at math and science, you know, it's, um, you know, um, academically I was, you know, you know, I guess pretty good, um, at those things. Um, engineering seemed like a good potentially lucrative default career path. And I, you know, I don't want to simply limit it to that practical aspect. I mean, there are many really fascinating intellectual aspects to it as well and physics. And, um, so it was intellectually engaging as well, mm -hmm. but, um, I really kind of, um, began those studies kind of before kind of 
really learning about the Bible. Okay. Uh, and, and so really during my college years, um, I think my interests shifted. Um, I kind of came to realize that I there wasn't as passionate about the engineering as certainly I saw in my um, classmates who would, yeah. you know, stay up all night to build a robot okay. for their project. And I, I didn't want to stay up all night building robots. I, I wanted to read other things. I, you know, I, I kind of developed other interests and then, you know, um, mm-hmm. as often happens, right. During college years, you, you discover you know, mm-hmm. more about yourself, more about um, the questions that animate you as a person and, and, mm-hmm. and so on. Okay. And so that, um, you know, but I finished that degree. I mean, I was kind of too far in to, <laughs> to switch majors at that point, really. Um, I did kind of fit in a year of New Testament Greek during my undergraduate days. Oh, okay. Thinking kind of oh, maybe I kind of do something um, different after my bachelor's degree, which is what I eventually did. Um, and I um, eventually enrolled in a seminary, uh, Regent College in Vancouver, which is uh, close to where I was living at the time. Yeah. Um, at that point, still not fully knowing that I would pursue this as an academic career. Uh, it was more just um, a change of pace and um uh, wanting to try something different, something, and, and to fulfill kind of a lot of the intellectual questions that I had uh, um, developed. And really kind of from there, that's um, you know how I eventually got to where I am now. Right. That's great. That's great. Um, so before we talk about your book, um, I wonder what you'd say to those listeners who, uh, from the start, may be put off by this concept of sin. I mean, I think many in our culture today either find it, you know, irrelevant or antique or even offensive, uh, or simply just too severe of a concept for really our modern sort of secular understanding of a little bit more benevolent attitude toward um, human nature. Um, as just kind of our default mode, um, in, at least in American, you know, modern American culture. Um, now it may be a funny way of putting it, but what, what's the best thing that could be said about the concept of sin in that vein? Uh, interesting. Um, what's the best thing? I, well, let, if you'll allow me to sort of answer the question for, in a different way. Yes. Yes. Sure. First, I mean, I, so I think first thing I would say to that person who, who's perhaps put off by this idea um, is that my book, at least, I, I mean, I, I don't see myself, I'm not, not promoting the idea of sin or this concept in, in any particular way. I mean, my, my concerns primarily in the book are historical. Yes. I mean, as a sort of an ancient cultural historian trying to understand the origins of this concept that undeniably we speak about historically has exerted a huge influence, right. In mm-hmm. Western culture and you know, religious ideas. Um, so we, we can't deny, you know, what, however one might react to that idea now as a theological concept, I don't think you can deny that discourse on sin has been important, right. Historically. And so what my book primarily does is really kind of go to the, 
very beginning, right, uh, to the texts of the Hebrew Bible, um, kind of, and, you know, texts that are obviously um, crucially important for how this concept takes shape in later Judaism and Christianity. Um, and in a way, I mean, some one might even say I'm, I'm kind of deconstructing the concept a little bit, kind of looking deeper, looking at the different nuances, um, trying to question perhaps, um, you know, uh, are our modern notions of sin, perhaps some of these ideas that may put certain people off or not, do are they rooted in the biblical text or are they not? Or, you know, perhaps there's a contrast there. Perhaps a lot of those theological ideas, you know, come in in, in later periods um, in history. So we can't know that until we go to the beginning and right. try to uh, uh, fill out that picture. Yeah, it is. It is remarkable how many layers of accretions, you know, that you have to separate out. Uh, just as you go further and further back, um, you know, Augustine's what Augustine did with the concept of sin and making it much more psychological. Um, but even before that, what Paul St. Paul does, and we'll get into some of that um, a little later on. I'm very interested in what are the repercussions here, but the effort here is kind of like, uh, I believe it's called strate- uh, stratigraphy, you know, yeah, uncovering yeah. the layers here and, and right, you, using an archaeological metaphor. Yes, yeah. and to to really to go back to this some of these source materials, which I think we get so uh, the layers get in between us and and the text, and it's almost yeah. and it's we read back into the text things that may not even be there. So it's very yeah. uh, clarifying to to go back and to dig through and say, well, what are these operative metaphors? Is, is the way you put it. Uh, another way to f- reframe uh, some of this context is that uh, there's a religion professor at Boston University named Stephen Prothero, and he says uh, in his book, God is Not One, that all religious people worldwide agree that something has gone awry. They part company, however, when it comes to stating just what has gone wrong, and they dar- diverge sharply when they move from diagnosing the human problem to prescribing how to solve it. And he says that every religion has a problem and then they have a goal or a solution to that problem. And in Christianity, uh, the uh, Christians see sin as the problem and salvation from sin as the religious goal. And Mm -hmm. similarly, Judaism, he says, is uh, one of the problem is exile or distance from God. And uh, his the solution uh, is you know, retelling the story or uh, abidance by, you know, the uh, uh, of the law and walking in the law. So he has I mean, not to get into his argument too much, but it was an interesting way of 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 looking at why sin itself is a problem in the text um, and uh, and to see why it's important to see if if it continues to be the heart of the problem in Christianity and to some extent, Judaism, why it's important to go back to the source. Would you, what do you think about that? Yeah. I mean, I think there, there's, um, there, there's, uh, there's some good points there. I mean, I, I always hesitate, you know, it's kind of a natural reflex as a scholar who works in religion to, to, 
um, you know, want to tread carefully about making two sweeping statements that apply oh, to sure. every religion sure. that uh, we know about. I mean, I think in a very general sense, yeah, I mean, all religious uh, worldviews, all, all human worldviews, really. I mean, we, we need some language for talking about when things go wrong mm-hmm. or, or when, when things aren't, you know, what we think they ought to be. Mm-hmm. Um, if we want to call that sin, um, we can. Uh, but then, of course, the, you know, the devil's in the details, too, right? Um, so we, we can kind of, you know, it, it's okay to kind of have, you know, uh, a, a more general kind of idea uh, kind of to begin with. But then um, at some point, you, I think when speaking with, uh, speaking about individual religious traditions, mm-hmm. uh, that there, you know, there are a lot of very important differences as well, I, I guess it is what I would want to say. And I think, you know, related to my book, what what I think um, one of the aspects that, that comes out is that, you know, the, the language of sin, um, and this is probably true of, of many other religious traditions as well, language of sin is thoroughly embedded within that ancient cultural context, using images, using ideas, um, uh, social institutions um, and kind of understanding sin or what, you know, the terminology for sin is often tied inextricably to these very cultural specific um, images and ideas. Um, and so I, th- I think really kind of the larger project is um, kind of looking at in each individual religious tradition, each kind of um, set of texts and, and um, other traditions to, Kind of really elucidate those images. Yeah, we'll talk about the, your use of metaphor. Um, but before we do, I wonder if you talk that you mention uh, in many places throughout the book uh, another author, Gary Anderson, who's written a book on sin. Um, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about what his main argument was and his uh, influence in how this book? came into being. He, he actually blurbed your book on the back yeah. cover, which is very nice of him. Um, but you have, you, you disagree and, uh, maybe you've moved him further down the path. Um, uh, yeah. but, uh, what did he argue and why was that an important book? Yeah. Okay. So, um, Gary Anderson's book is called sin, a history it comes from, uh, it's probably written five or six years ago now, um, published five or six years ago. Um, and um, kind of in a nutshell, uh, I don't have the book with me right now, but um, so, so the title of the book kind of hints at what he's trying to do. He's trying to tell a story about kind of the development of the concept of sin throughout time. And he does begin with the Bible. Uh, so uh, what he points out, he emphasizes in the book, is that um, in the Hebrew Bible, um, the dominant metaphor kind of in his view is sin as burden, sin viewed that, like a weight that you carry that weighs down on you, crushes you, um, and, and so on. Uh, so that, that kind of, he points out as the dominant metaphor for sin within the Hebrew Bible, uh, in the pre-exilic period or first temple period. So ancient Israel before about 586 
Sixty, which is the, kind of the date that scholars um, have um, determined as, as the um, date of the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, uh, the first destruction. Uh, so what um, Anderson says that um, in the second temple period, post-exilic period, there emerges uh, another metaphor that sort of takes over. This is the metaphor of sin as debt. Sin is a debt that is to be paid back. And as that concept develops in, and, and he um, elucidates this through an analysis of early Jewish and Christian texts, um, there's kind of a, 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 an accompanying idea of credit in the form of good deeds. So if, if, if a sin is a debt, how do you pay back that debt? Well, you do, uh, you pay back that debt by almsgiving, by doing good deeds, uh, being righteous, and that then you accrue a credit that uh, kind of um, cancels out the debt. So his, I mean, it's a, also a, a, a brilliant book, covers um, a huge amount of time in terms of, you know, the, the literary sources that he's dealing with, all the way from you know, the Hebrew Bible text, earliest text of the Hebrew Bible to Anselm, right? St. Anselm, Canterbury, 12th century, um, tracing what is mostly, he's really mostly tracing the sin as debt idea mm-hmm. and kind okay. of elaborating that. So, so all that to say, kind of how then my book fits in, I, I'm really uh, focused on the Hebrew Bible part. And I, I think um, a lot of what Anderson says is valid. And in fact, I, I think in, in my book, I, I try to give credit to him for kind of, um, pointing out the importance of this sin as debt metaphor really in the post-exilic period. But um, I think uh, the idea that sin as burden is sort of the one metaphor that we need to know about in the Hebrew Bible and that's it. Um, that picture I think is um, not adequate. And I think I would guess that he would, you know, admit that himself, like he really doesn't spend a lot of time on the Hebrew Bible in his book. It's just one or two short chapters um, and what I'm really trying to do is kind of um, expand on the biblical material, right? which in turn might kind of has implications for how you frame the development of these metaphors later. Right. And your book is much more granular in not only just focusing on the Hebrew Bible, but also really scouring the uh, different verses uh, on a linguistic, etymological um, yeah. you know, and lexical sort of way, um, uh, in some, and in some ways you're not as you're looking at these different usages across multiple authors, multiple texts within the yeah. Hebrew canon with some reference to things outside of it, but, um, uh, mainly on the Hebrew text. So, um, uh, so, and that's one of the, the differences here is that it's a, it's kind of a finer study. Um, and your book also sets out to do uh, something different, though, from a word study, uh, which you mm-hmm. set apart. And and that's your focus on metaphor. Um, yeah. How does that help to focus your analysis of the Bible, um, of the Hebrew Bible in this case? And um, how is that? A, how does that allow you to sort of organize something uh, conceptual differently from say looking at specific instances of law breaking or yeah. uh you know you have many cases of 
you know, uh, adultery or murder or, yeah. you know, a clear uh, uh, instances of infractions of the law, yeah. which you could see as sin. But that's really not what you're talking about. You're looking at. So why does metaphor help to be this organizing concept? And how how do you, how did that come about taking that approach? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And it's, it's a big question because it really kind of gets at the the main approach I adopt in the book and, and kind of the, the main point. So uh, I guess um, the way I would answer it is to draw a distinction between my approach and two other uh, possible approaches okay. um, to kind of defining or looking at what sin is in the Hebrew Bible. So that, that's our question. Um, and particularly kind of, again, getting back to my main concern thinking of myself as an ancient cultural historian, trying to say, what did the typical ancient Israelite living in 700 BCE think <laughs> about sin, right? When they're kind of using these terms, right? Um, so one concept uh, or one approach that is distinct is the etymolo etymological approach, right? Which is uh, kind of, dominated a lot of biblical studies. In short, it's just sort of looking at um, terms for sin, right? So in, in biblical Hebrew, we have terms like avon, um, traditionally translated iniquity, chet, sin, pesha, transgression, these various words that, you know, are understood, like we understand as having some relation to sin. So um, a lot, what a lot of scholars have done is say, okay, where, where do those words come from? What's the etymology of those words? And avon is kind of seen as, oh, it means a twisting or a perversion. Hate is a missing of the mark. Uh, pesha is a rebellion. And so that's what sin is. Um, now, there's, use, there's uh, clearly some value in that approach, but I think um, when taken too far, that can uh, be uh, misleading because – we, you know, we can think of English, right? I mean, we, uh, or any world language, we don't necessarily, um, you know, think in terms of etymologies, right? We, words mean what they mean. We don't, it doesn't matter what it meant in old English, right? Um, now, another approach is a more overtly theological approach. And by theological in this context, I mean sort of, operating within kind of the canonical context. So what is sin? Oh, well, let's start with Adam and Eve, right? Um, which, you know, I mean, it's obviously at, from a theological perspective, that is valid. But it kind of from an ancient cultural perspective, that uh, might not be the best approach either because, you know, the reason that Genesis is where it is in the Bible kind of has to do with other factors uh, how these texts were collected at a later period, right? right? Um, so, so then kind of my, the question I had for myself was how to, like what kind of method would you uh, kind of adopt to try to reveal kind of the, the more kind of conventional cultural idea of sin? And so I think metaphor is what I kind of uh, came upon as, uh, kind of an important entryway, right? We, uh, and this, uh, comes, relates to a lot of, uh, recent work, theoretical work that's been done on metaphor 
in uh, many fields in the humanities in recent decades within linguistics, philosophy, psychology. So metaphor in the last 30, 40 years has become a very kind of important uh, area of study throughout uh, the humanities. Uh, and scholars have basically realized the importance of metaphor, not simply kind of as embellishment. It's not simply a, a poetic device that can be um, kind of, uh, you know, explained and then forgotten about. It pervades our everyday language. It relates to the way we think about things, not only the way we speak about them. Yeah. So, so then these metaphors then, especially when, um, by looking at many different examples, so not just one text, but looking at patterns of metaphors. What are the kinds of metaphors that recur over and over within biblical Hebrew? Um, what are kind of metaphors that um, various diff- different biblical writers from different time periods, different dialects, perhaps even uh, within um, ancient biblical Hebrew, nonetheless uh, used in common to talk about this idea of sin? So if we group the metaphors in those ways, mm-hmm. let's see what we find. So essentially, that's what I did. And I kind of grouped them into four major groups, which we'll, we'll talk about at, yeah. at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but that's really kind of the structure of the study. And so metaphor for me is a vehicle for getting at these cultural conceptions. So in the same way that, uh, I don't know, I mean, we might say, you know, um, if, if you were from Mars and you're a Martian kind of observing American English and you kind of see, well, why did these Americans um, use so many sports metaphors or something, you know, um, uh, you know, talk about yeah, hit a home run kind of in, in that business meeting or something mm-hmm. um, that tells you something about American culture, American society. That's not trivial. Right. So, so yes. there's a reason why certain metaphors recur. It's, they have to do with the importance of those ideas and, and how available they are to, you know, American speak, speakers of American English. Uh, so in the same way, um, we can, I try to apply that to the ancient situation. Okay. Can, can you give an example of a metaphor that, you know, a non-biblical metaphor, just so we're sort of clear about terms and how does it differ from maybe some misunderstandings of what a metaphor is, and maybe you can just negotiate that at the beginning so that it's clear. An example of a non-biblical me- metaphor, yeah, yeah, uh, from from any language, yeah, or? from any any cultures, or um, uh, so. I mean, what like the sports one, or oh, kind of- yeah. So, how does a metaphor function? I guess is what I'm getting right. at, so that we can kind of be clear up front about the terms, because I know you spend a lot of time actually yeah. talking about the theoretical. Uh, and linguistic underpinning of of metaphor, and I don't want to just do disservice to the book by okay. downplaying that here. But yeah, um, yeah. You, you do, there is a lot of intense kind of theoretical material here. But how would you explain that, you know, to our listeners about um, how does it function, and uh, uh, you know, in in your sense, in the way that you're investigating? Yeah. So um, one major. Uh, point I would want to make about metaphor is that, um, and I think this is this is crucially important for the study of the Hebrew Bible, really for understanding language in general. Um, it has to do with uh, kind of metaphor as a mode of construal. So I, I talk about construal, 
in my book, in kind of the earlier part where I'm laying the theoretical foundation. So um, the reason this is important is that, I, I mean, often we, we talk in, in everyday parlance, we talk about, oh, such and such a metaphor. So, so that, that business meeting was a home run um, is a metaphor. Um, and, and we, I mean, it's fine. We put that label on it. Uh, uh, but, but really kind of what we mean is, so the distinction I'm trying to make is that, um, anything that can be construed as a metaphor is, is the result of an active process of interpretation. So, so, um, any phrase or word and, you know, any linguistic word or phrase that we call a metaphor is really just, um, a, a phrase that, uh, kind of, you know, is most likely to be construed as a metaphor. So one of the examples I use in the book is, you know, that chairman plowed through the discussion. So it's, you know, plowing as a metaphor, right? So, um, we immediately naturally label that as a metaphor. No one questions that it's a metaphor, you know, as opposed to a literal, you know, translation would be that, um, chairman, uh, you know, rushed through and, you know, didn't spend enough time kind of in the discussion, right? So that might be a more literal paraphrase of the metaphor of plowing. But what's distinct about metaphorical language or, or uh, language that can be construed metaphorically is that the literal construal is always possible. I mean, it might seem kind of nonsensical at, at times, but I mean, we can kind of still imagine it in theory. So in theory, you could imagine a chairman like in a tractor <laughs> plowing through this boardroom, right? And, and, you know, pushing all the furniture aside um, uh, through the discussion, right? So that would be the literal construal of that phrase, so now it's clearly, I mean, in this context, it, there's no question that that's what is meant. I mean, you could in, you could imagine some, it would be a far-fetched scenario uh, where, but at least it's, it's hypothetically possible, right, that that, that, that could exist. It's a, it's a valid English sentence, right? So, um, I mean, I use that example to simply kind of uh, – put forth this idea that metaphor is a mode of construal. And even though with the plowing example, um, it's more of a trivial type of example, when it gets to other uh, phrases in the Hebrew Bible, mm -hmm. and keep in mind when we're talking about biblical Hebrew, we are working from the perspective of not being native speakers, right? So this is an ancient language. It's not modern Hebrew. It's biblical Hebrew. It's right. the Hebrew that was spoken, you know, 2,500 years ago. There are no living speakers that we can consult. So in right. a way, a lot of the intuition, we lack the natural native speaker intuitions that would guide us otherwise. Right. So we actually need to be more precise uh, about kind of these linguistic aspects. So that's part of why I get into those details. Excellent. Excellent. Let's, well, let's get into it get into your, uh, four metaphors for sin and, uh, you know, just bridging from what you just said. Uh, one of the things I was very struck by, um, is the, uh, you don't talk a lot about Genesis and, 
Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting because you see sin across the board and you're not focusing on, you know, uh, original sin or the mm-hmm. Adam and Eve or any of that. But one of the things I was stunned by is the, um, uh, the example from Genesis four with, uh, Cain and Abel and that this mm-hmm. sense of the sin as burden, um, that actually that forgiveness is unburdening mm-hmm. and that there's this origin of unburdening yeah. and that, but, and yet, there you list off um on page 62 of your book you know this uh all of these translations which yeah which really changed the meaning so can you uh maybe first back up and talk about what does it mean sin is a burden but then let's let's look at that passage and what what they're what they're what's going on there and why so many translations and commentaries skim over that okay so just focusing on the the first of the four major metaphors first mm-hmm. so sin as burden so really this, um, so Gary Anderson already hinted at this, but, uh, and so he's right in that it is a biblical metaphor. Um, you know, the main difference I have uh, with him is that I, I think there are these uh, three other ones that are also very important. Uh, but so this is the idea that sin is kind of this object that is carried or, or weighs down. I mean, that's, and it, keep in mind when we speak of metaphors, it's not, as if every single expression of the metaphor has the exact same image in mind, but I think we can say across a broad variety of different phrases that this common idea of sin um, as burden is expressed. So in specific Hebrew terminology, one very important term is a verb, nasa. So nasa in biblical Hebrew means to carry or to lift off or to bear. So actually some of those different translation possibilities already hint at uh, the, the different possibilities for the metaphor. So in some cases, uh, a person nasas sin, bears sin, you know, in a lot of the uh, legal texts in the Pentateuch, um, you know, someone commits an offense and then they are said to, they will nasa their guilt or, you know, uh, their their burden, but I, I so I, I think this idea of the sinner carrying the burden kind of unites a number of ideas. It's a way of expressing the state of guilt. It also expresses the liability to punishment. So the punishment is on you as well. So the you, the uh, interesting thing about a lot of uh, words for sin in biblical Hebrew is that they mean not only sin, but also the guilt of the sin and the punishment that is due for the sin. It's all kind of bound up in the same word. So you carry this sin slash guilt slash punishment with you. Forgiveness in biblical Hebrew, the most common way of expressing it is also with this verb nasa, which in that case means to lift up. So someone else lifts off the sin from you. And so whether this could be someone else, you might be asking someone to forgive you their sin, that person, and they, you ask them to nasa your sin. God also nasas sin off of people. Um, so in addition to that, there are many other kind of expressions of this idea. Sins are placed on people and kind of thrown off of people. Uh, uh, sin is described as heavy, right, upon person, a uh, person or persons. Um so, oh, okay. So that that's kind of this broad idea. Yeah. Very important group of metaphors. Now, getting to Genesis four, verse thirteen. 
right? This uh, specific uh, phrase within the Cain and Abel story. Um, so this is actually after Cain murders his brother um, uh, and is confronted by God. Uh, so, uh, and what he says uh, there in Hebrew, Gadol Avonim in so. Uh, so this God or kind of this is after God kind of kind of revealed that he, he realizes that, you know, Cain has uh, um, or, or Cain's sin of, of murder has been discovered. And so God uh, uh, kind of punishes him by sending him uh, to wander. Right. Um, essentially kind of for, for the uh, rest of his life. And he says, you know, Gadol avonim and so. So the question, there's actually a translational question. Because nasa can either mean to bear or to lift off, uh, the question is, does this mean my sin is too great to bear? Meaning, so Cain saying, you know, I can't handle it. This is this punishment is too heavy for me. Um, or does it mean my sin is too great to be forgiven? That my sin is too great for anyone else to forgive me. Um, and the the uh, kind of page you're talking about with the ancient translations, so one thing I was struck by is that in almost every major modern translation, that's not in only in English, you look at French, German, kind of pretty much, um, you know, any modern translation, you'll pick up 98% of them will translate it, my sin is too great to bear with that interpretation, right? The interpretation being that Cain is uh, sort of saying, uh, you know, this, this punishment is, is um, too severe. Whereas all the ancient translations, so almost the exact polar opposite, uh, and I'm, by ancient translations, I'm talking about, you know, the Aramaic Targums and the, the Septuagint and they got all these um, early translations, ancient translations, they all render it, with the forgive idea, my sin is too great to be forgiven. Mm-hmm. This, I mean, I, I've been kind of thinking about this in, in reading the, in writing the book, and even since. And and um, I mean, the, it, it's just really interesting how polar opposite that the ancient and modern notions um, have. And I think it might have something to do with our modern ideas of how we envision a sinner, right? Um, the, the ancient translations view kind of the statement as more of a statement of his status, kind of more of an objective status, right? So my sin is too great to be lifted off, forgiven by someone else. It's not so much um, an elaboration of kind of his internal state of mind. Yes, right. Whereas the, the, my sin is too great to bear, we kind of we, we imagine the kind of this um, uh, sort of agony, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's kind of there's there's other kind of aspects of, of this uh, distinction that I think are relevant, and, and they have to do with situating that verse within the literary context of that entire passage, and I get into that somewhat in the book. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, so it's kind of you know in kind of for now I think I think pointing out I mean this is a perfect example of how 
you know, modern assumptions that we bring, you know, might not be kind of, uh, you know, necessarily the ancient assumptions. I mean, certainly these, these ancient translations, I, I would guess, I mean, the fact that they're so consistent, they're probably picking up on kind of a different ancient ways of thinking that we've now since lost. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, um, I want to make sure we get to the other three. Um, um, so let's move on and talk about sin as a count. Yeah. Um, because I so, think in some ways, uh, like Gary Anderson, uh, Gary Anderson's book, um, you know, this is really where people focus the most, but I also think the other two are, uh, valuable as well, but let's, let's talk about, uh, the next three, um, briefly so yeah. we can get into some of the implications of these. Yeah. Ideas. Mm-hmm. So sin as a count is, I think as important as sin is burden. Um, I think it's as pervasive, right. In terms of, um, kind of, uh, how frequently it occurs and, and the diverse, the diversity of linguistic expressions of this metaphor that we find in the Hebrew Bible. And I purposely use the word account and not debt because I think this highlights a conceptual shift that one does find from the first temple to the second temple period, pre-exilic and post-exilic. So because Gary Anderson um, focuses more on the post-exilic period, so he mainly talks about sin as debt, um, but I think sin is as an account, simply more neutral, not necessarily. So the distinction there is if we talk about debt, we're already implying that the sinner has to pay it back. But I think sin as account is more descriptive of the biblical, most of the biblical language in that it's an account that God keeps. So God as a sort of a heavenly judge, a heavenly king, uh-huh. sort of imagined in the same way that um doing the kinds of things that ancient Near Eastern kings do. They keep records. They they sit in judgment. Um, So God keeps records of deeds, good or bad, sins or righteous deeds. And so here's the distinction for sin as account, sin as debt. In most of the Hebrew Bible, the vast majority of language uh, in the Hebrew Bible, sin, the sinner can't pay it back. Right. It's not the sinner paying back the debt, um, but it's God paying back. And the Hebrew terms here are Heshiv and Shilain, two um, common Hebrew words that also occur in economic contexts. So those two words are also used literally for repaying of a debt in other cases. But in context dealing with sin, it's God paying back the sin in proper measure. So if you sinned, God records it. Um, and based on that record, God pays back mm. to the sinner in proper measure. So it's not the sinner paying it back, right? So it's a totally different, I mean, in a way it's similar language, yeah. but it's totally different conceptually. Right. Um, connected to this, also, we also have sins being written down and erased. God also writes down and erases sins, so that kind of also confirms this idea that we're, we're dealing with some sort of administrative concept, mm-hmm. the language of administration. Right. And another thing you connect account with, which is I had been thinking of it, or maybe it's just because of the layers of what other people tell me about ledger. It, it, it mm-hmm. is there. Are, there is this sense of ledger because you just mentioned that. But you also bring in this notion that actually there is census 
that is, mm-hmm. or a census, or even just um, writing it down, that it's not simply a ledger of, uh, in terms of uh, an, an economic or financial tally, right. uh, but a census, you, you say, is actually evoked in a few places. Yeah, yeah, and this is kind of uh, related to another Hebrew verb, pakad, which actually, incidentally, um, has caused a lot of um, difficulty for scholars of biblical Hebrew. I mean, so pakad is kind of uh, notoriously difficult to translate as a verb. It has so many different translation possibilities. Um, so uh, one thing that perhaps more readers might recognize, uh, you know, the King James Version um, translates certain verses in the uh, Hebrew Bible um, as you know, God visiting the sins of the fathers upon the children. That term translated visit is the same verb, pakad. But I think there it, it's actually, it's it's a term of, again, administration census. So again, we have to um, imagine what ancient kings did, why they wrote things down or why they had things written down. I mean, sometimes it was for economic purposes, Sometimes it was to record, um, you know, soldiers for military conscription, perhaps. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, there's various. So, so and, and since we're talking here, I mean, when we're talking about the Hebrew Bible, um, we're also talking about a, a period of time, right, in which not writing was invented, but writing was becoming uh kind of more of an established technology, if you will, within ancient Israel, right? So, so really we're, we're talking about um, uh, kind of these, these biblical texts were written during a time kind of shortly after or kind of around the time when um, uh, kind of the technology of writing and literacy was increasing. I mean, it was never anywhere close to what we imagine modern literacy, you know, 99% of people literate, but kind of with the development of the monarchy and, and the ancient, you know, Israelite state, um, you know, these, uh, the use of writing increased use of writing for various administrative purposes. So Mm -hmm. military, economic, other administrative purposes. So sin then is, it's kind of this, a metaphor of administration, generally speaking, is then applied as a way of understanding what sin is. It's kind of it's another record that a king has to keep. And uh, any good and just king, right, in the ancient world, had to maintain that justice, right, by um, you know taking care of you know, the, the poor, um, uh, of exercising good judgment. And, you know, we think of things like the code of Hammurabi, right? right ancient Mesopotamia, kind of this a symbol of, you know, uh, a righteous king will erect a monument, right? With laws on it, but it, it's, there's a kind of an ideological purpose there. It's to say that this king is just, right? This king executes righteous judgments. So the sin is kind of then a, an expression of that as well, right? When we're talking about these metaphors. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk quickly about um, sin as path or direction and stain and impurity. I think both of these have huge implications. The first sin is path or direction has a little bit more in common with uh, 
other religious traditions like Taoism. But yeah. can you just talk about briefly about these two and how they operate? Yeah. So these two are also very important. I think they're um, in comparison with the first two, burden and account, uh, they are less kind of unified as a group, but they they more they they're kind of they share a more more of a family resemblance with each other. But so path or directional metaphors, but what I mean by those are various metaphors that have to do with um, the sinner traveling in various directions toward away from sin. So a person walks in sin, one turns away from sin, uh, turns back from sin as a way of expressing, you know, remorse, perhaps, uh, uh, you know, turning away from sin, repentance and so on. Um, uh, sometimes one, uh, you know, an, uh, a, an evil path is described as, well, you're traveling, but you're traveling in the wrong direction. Right. So you need to turn back. So you're either traveling towards and away from it. Um, distinction between uh, a good path and uh, wrong paths. And all of this language really is kind of, I think, at the emergence of the idea of a moral agent. So we, we kind of think about, you know, our ourselves very much in, in very developed ideas of sin. Um, we speak of moral agents. Uh, uh, a person ha- is able to make choices about whether they, they do good or bad, um, righteous deed versus sinful deeds. And, and so this uh, language of traveling in various directions along a landscape, mm-hmm. right, is kind of tied, tied in with, bound up with uh, this, I think, this idea of a moral agent. Now, the, the, uh, the fourth metaphor, sin as stain or impurity, um, has this additional tricky part in that it's not always a metaphor. So I want to emphasize first and foremost that the vast majority of purity language, the language of purity and impurity in the Hebrew Bible, doesn't necessarily have to do with sin. So we have this idea, separate idea, a literal idea of ceremonial impurity or cultic impurity um you read texts like leviticus not perhaps not a lot of popular um readers might necessarily spend a lot of time reading the book of leviticus but if you did um you would find okay certain uh processes that one goes through come in contact with a corpse or you know various other things um that renders you impure but I, I want to emphasize, I don't mean that uh, that doesn't automatically mean it's sin, right? Because these are I mean, so um, these are simply um, kind of cultic categories that one enters into. However, we do also have sometimes sin described as a stain hmm. or as an impurity. So that it's used as a metaphor, right? In addition to the kind of this literal idea of impurity. Most of the time, I think very frequently, it's interesting, it's often a blood stain. Yeah. Right? So, so blood on the hands or blood on clothing is, I mean, that is, that's evocative of violence in particular, right? So, so your, your hands are stained with blood, right? Um, but that, that gets at a, a certain type of sin. Um, and, and the interesting thing about these uh, metaphors of stain and impurity is, it's a more visceral category of metaphor. It, 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 it's 
I, I think the, the term might be non-rational, not irrational, but non-rational in, in that when we speak about a stain or, you know, say I say you're, you're stained. I mean, our, our immediate reaction is, oh, no, it, it, it's a, a reaction of revulsion or we're repulsed by something. Right. So yeah. this idea of something that intrudes is something that re- we react to. And I think that that is related to the force of a lot of these metaphors, why they're particularly effective. A lot of the language of the prophets in the Hebrew Bible mm-hmm. describe um, the worship of other gods, right? Idolatry as an impurity, mm-hmm. right? So, so this is an intrusion into the pure worship of the Lord, yeah, right? Um, and that I think is a, a very effective rhetorical device. Well, um, I, I certainly wish we had more time to get into some of the implications of your work, which is deeply fascinating. And I think a lot of people can build on it um, in the future. Uh, it may cause some people to rethink uh, a number of their uh, ideas. But I wonder if you might comment briefly about this notion that if we're looking at it as metaphor, one thing I I thought about as I read through the book is that by thinking about it in terms of metaphor, because we're not actually looking about violations of mm. specific codes, if there's this sense that of that the metaphors help to reinforce this notion, all four metaphors in different ways reinforce this notion that we're not simply it's actually in some ways anti-legalistic, that it's more like if you look at the trajectory of the path or direction or uh, this notion of account or burden, all of these seem to create a notion that extends beyond mere rule breaking. And Mm -hmm. do you get that sense that there is this uh, carryover and maybe why there is this kind of uh, bleed over into, uh, for lack of a better term, self-righteousness or an attitude of, of righteousness that is not specifically related to law keeping. Yeah. Um, I think, I mean, this, it's a very good question. I think um, what you're pointing out is kind of the result of the approach I adopted because I purposely focused on metaphor and I I couldn't do everything in the book. Um, Obviously I, I, you know, just essentially ignored a lot of literal statements about metaphor, about sin that would be important too if you really were kind of defining sin in a comprehensive way. Uh, uh, so, so a lot of statements about well, this is sin and this isn't, um, you know, I, I'm not dealing with that language, but because I'm dealing with the metaphor, I'm also, uh, that overlaps significantly with rhetoric, with situations, rhetorical situations in the Hebrew Bible where a certain writer or speaker is trying to convince others Right. So again, you can think of the prophet, you can think of uh, various um, contexts in the biblical text where where this rhetoric might be particularly strong, trying to convince them to either kind of turn away from a certain path of a certain way of behavior to others, trying to argue why this is not something you should pursue versus something else. So. Kind of, there's a rhetorical force of these metaphors that I think is very important. And it is actually, I think, one of the important results of the book, 
that these metaphors, they're not just simply expressing cultural ideas, but they actually frame the way we engage with the idea. Uh, once you speak of sin as a path, well, you're, you're kind of, you're already in, envisioning that path, right? You're, you're sort of drawn into the way that metaphor um, sets up that idea. Um, even uh, kind of, even in simply in hearing that phrase or reading that phrase. And so I think kind of the focus on metaphor is why you have the strong rhetorical emphasis and, and why kind of the book then kind of really focuses more on those aspects of the language. And, and so I wouldn't dismiss kind of the, the idea of rule breaking. It just wasn't kind of an emphasis in my book. I mm-hmm. think it would be kind of a different book or uh, kind of there's other, many other writers that have um, kind of looked at those aspects. Sure. sure. Excellent. Well, um, our traditional uh, final question on the New Books Network is, what are you working on now? Yeah, well, I'm actually kind of be- in the very beginning stages of a second project um, looking at the relationship between sacrifice and sin in ancient Israel. Um, I actually happen to be in Jerusalem right now. Um, I'm uh, kind of a, uh, staying at the Albright Institute of Archaeological Research um, here in Jerusalem, uh, summer fellow, um, kind of doing some research, doing some preliminary work, getting at this question that really emerges out of the first book. Um, but I've become interested particularly in the practice of sacrifice and how it connects with all, a lot of these ideas of sin. Perhaps readers of the, my first book might have some of these questions kind of um, bouncing around in their minds. So if that's the case, wait for my next book. Excellent. Well, I have to have you back on when it's published. Great. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much, Garrett. All right. Take care. That concludes my conversation with Joseph Lamb about his book, Patterns of Sin in the Hebrew Bible, published by Oxford University Press. Please join me again to hear about other new books in biblical studies. To learn about new programs as they are posted, you can follow the channel on Twitter at New Books Bible. As always, thank you for listening.